And uh, BJ, can you share with us about what Christ means to you, how Christ has come into your life? Thank you, Seth. There are a lot of children still in here, and I'd just like to let you know that when I was eight years old, I clearly understood that I was a sinner and I deserved to go to hell. I clearly understood that because Dr. Billy Graham was standing there in front of a whole stadium explaining to everyone what I was like. He said that you may act good most of the time, and in fact everybody else may believe that you're good, but God knows your heart. God knows you're a sinner, and sinners without Christ go to hell. He had my attention. I listened to the rest of his sermon very carefully, and he said that, but God had loved me so much that he didn't want me to have to take the punishment for my sin, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. All I had to do was to be sorry for my sin and to accept Jesus as my Savior. I hardly waited until they started singing, Just As I Am, before I was out of my seat and down the aisle because I wanted Jesus to be my Savior. And then I went back to my church and they had a baptismal class that if you come every Saturday for six weeks, you could be baptized and show everyone that you had accepted Christ. So I went. But then they decided I was too young to be baptized. So I waited until I was nine years old, and I went back again every Saturday for six weeks, and they didn't have the courage to tell me then that I was too young to be baptized, and I was. So then the church became the second part of my life. I went to church that a youth group participated, served, and at the age of 14, I was challenged by a speaker to let the Jesus Christ be the Lord of my life. And I wanted that to happen. And I didn't know how I could really serve him except to commit that I'll marry a missionary or a pastor. So I wrote that in my diary that I would marry a missionary or a pastor because I wanted to serve him. And some years later I married Charlie who was a Bible college student who would become the pastor of a small country church. I was 20 years old. I was a full-time Bible college student and I was working part-time at the company where I would retire from 37 years later. I was a Sunday school teacher, I taught beginners church, youth choir, the full-time cook for the church, and the cook for the youth retreats. Had two weekly Bible clubs as well. That was a very busy time. But Charlie and I served the Lord together, and we enjoyed doing that. For the 32 years that Charlie and I were married, I grew in the Lord. I had gone to Bible college because he had insisted. I heard his sermons every week, multiple times during the week because the pastor's wife has to be at the church, especially when I didn't have children as a good reason to stay home. And I watched Charlie, whose entire purpose in life was to serve the Lord. So I grew. Charlie died five years ago from a brain tumor. And as the surgeon came in after the surgery and said to him that you have 12 months to live or less, he looked at her and he said, well, I've spent my entire life trying to teach people how to live according to the Bible. Let's see if I can teach them how to die according to the Bible. And he did. Some of the things that Charlie taught me, I'd like to share with you because that helps to explain who I am. And I call them Charlieisms. Number one, God is good. He only does good things. He wants to bless us. We need to accept what he does and with thankful hearts, thankful for who he is, thankful for, he, for the fact that he's in control, the fact that he never changes, and for the fact that he loves us more than we can ever understand. Second thing he taught me, give as much back to the Lord as you possibly can, because everything we have and everything we are is his. He has entrusted it to us for that purpose, so that we can give it back to him, whether it's our house, our cars, our lives. Another thing he taught me that's been very helpful in decision-making, consider the facts, 
and make decisions based on facts. Understand what feelings are and don't ignore them, but don't make decisions on them. Facts prevail. And I could give you hundreds of Charlieisms. I've served on the board of the Billy Graham Association for 17 years, but I had never had another conversa a conversation with another board member, Herb Hess, until some months after his wife Sally had died. And as I was standing on a lunch line with Herb, I said, Herb, how are you doing since Sally died? Because I understood empathetically what it felt like to lose a life partner. And we had our first conversation. Herb was not looking for female companionship. It was way too soon after his wife had died. I was not looking for a permanent relationship. I had made a commitment never to get married again because losing a husband once is enough. We don't need to go through that again. But we built a friendship at board meetings and then over email. And after about six months of emails, we took the big plunge and had a date. We went to Quincy Market. And the rest is history. We fell in love. We got married. I retired from my job. And I moved to Hingham. Now, many of you knew Sally. I never knew Sally. But I've come to know what she must have been like by watching her children and seeing Sally in the lives of the children. When I see things in them that I know isn't her, I know it must have been Sally. <laughs> so I thank the Lord for loving me. I thank him for having a plan for my life, even when I didn't think there was a plan. I thank him for the fact that he's never going to leave me and that the future, while it won't be without pain and it won't be perfect, is in his control. And that as long as I acknowledge him in all of my ways, he will direct my path. God is good. Amen. Thank you, and we're so glad to have you. Thank you yeah. very much. And uh, now as we prepare to hear from God's word, uh, the children are welcome to Children's Church, which you'll find through that door on the left side of the sanctuary, near the piano. And Rich, will you come introduce Dr. Pendleton? Hi, my name is Rich Chamberlain. I'm the youth pastor. I had a revelation this morning during our worship time. I just realized that the youth pastor is the antithesis of uh, recorded music. Recorded music is excellent. You know exactly what you're going to get, and therefore it's low risk. Enough said. <laughs> one wonderful thing about being a youth pastor, there's lots of wonderful things, but one really wonderful thing about being a youth pastor is if I'm praying over something and I'm studying the Word, but I just can't make a decision, I just don't know what the right thing to do is, I can go across the hall and knock on Jeremy's door. And I can share with Jeremy what's going on. And he can help me think rightly about things and process through and make right choices. That's really cool. Well, some of you may stop and think, yeah, that's really cool, but like, what does Jeremy do? <laughs> when he's stuck, when he's praying like mad and he's reading the scriptures, but he just doesn't know what he should do. He just doesn't know what the best course of action is. Well, fortunately for Jeremy and for South Shore Baptist Church, there's a really godly person that Pastor Jeremy can call up and turn to. He's a guy that served here ooh, about nine years ago now, if my math doesn't fail me, as our interim pastor. He was the, the last senior pastor before Jeremy, uh, serving in a turbulent and difficult and challenging time in the congregation 
our congregational life here at South Shore Baptist Church. And um, one thing I really like looking at when it comes to evaluating people is what they leave in their wake, what they leave behind them. I think that says a lot about uh, the quality of folks. And uh, the person I'm about to introduce to you, if you look at his wake, um, the impact that he's had on the people and the places that he's gone, um, and what's come, come behind him when he's left, it's really impressive. Uh, Susher Baptist being just one of many churches where he served as an interim uh, pastor. He's also uh, taught hundreds and hundreds of seminary students. He's a professor of pastoral counseling at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Also with the significant help of his wife Jan, has raised some wonderful children and has quite a few wonderful grandchildren as well. But all of those things said, it's really a privilege and a pleasure to introduce him to you this morning because he's a really good friend. Uh, he's a guy who uh, not only left a, a wonderful legacy here for us with Jeremy at South Shore Baptist Church, uh, but who had invested quite a bit in me in the short time, a couple of years that he was here as well, uh, encouraged this arthritic old youth pastor uh, not to give up the battle and uh, to continue steadfastly doing youth ministry. So I think it's appropriate, those of you who know him, I don't need to ask you to do this, but those of you who don't know him yet, if you would uh, put your hands together and give a very warm welcome to Dr. Ray Pendleton. wired for sound. <laughs> Richard, um, thank you for those kind words. <laughs> the most important one is that I'm a grandfather. <coughs> That's, uh, I have four beautiful grandchildren um, who keep me honest. It's a joy to be back here in uh, this pulpit again to see what God is doing here in this place. And BJ, um, thank you for that wonderful testimony. I want to think with you this morning uh, about uh, the question, is it love? That's an interesting question, I suppose, because there are many definitions. In that classic musical, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye says to Golda, do you love me? And she said, I cook your meals, I clean your house, I raise your children. What do you mean, do I love you? There are many definitions of love, I suppose, as many definitions as there are people. In a postmodern world, everyone has a definition for themselves, a definition that seems to meet their needs. And so each of us this morning, I suppose, has a definition of what love really is and what love really means. We talk about loving our dogs, our cats, our work, our cars, our sports teams, our food, and all kinds of things. But we recognize, if we think about it, that love is not a natural response. You say, not a natural response? No, love is not a natural response. We are not born knowing how to love. <clears throat> love must be learned. Children have to learn to love. How do they love? They love because their parents love them first. John, speaking to his little children, as he writes in the Isle of Patmos, says that we love God because he first loved us. And so children who grow up in loving families, in families where they are loved and accepted and cared for and disciplined and nurtured, 
learn what it means to love. Children who grow up in harsh, abusive, neglecting, punishing environments develop not love but fear and mistrust and a sense of anxiety about life and uncertainty about what life holds itself. We discover too in our own experiences that uh, broken marital relationships that, that fail because so many relationships fail. They start out, they look like love. But that love in the beginning is just kind of fraudulent love. It's just kind of erotic love, just kind of sexual love, hormonal kind of generated love. It isn't based upon really caring and trusting. And so when people come to that place, they discover that it was not really love in the first place. And the dreams that started out with this wonderful romance are shattered on the rocks of reality, of failure to love. I recall counseling one, one married couple a few years ago. They had had a very stormy courtship and it should have reminded them they shouldn't get married, but they, they did get married anyway. And they told me the story. They finally decided to get married after all that time, even though people had advised them against it. And in the limousine, going to the, re to the reception after the ceremony, he turned to her and said, I just made the biggest mistake in all of my life. What a wonderful way to start a relationship. And, and the relationship, no matter how turbulent, no matter how difficult, ended in abject failure and brokenness. So the question that I want to think with you about for a few minutes this morning is, what constitutes love that will last? What kind of love are we talking about? And so, if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn with me to the 12th chapter of Romans, this very familiar passage, and look at what it means to love. We're looking at the last part of this 12th chapter this morning, beginning at verse 9. Listen to the word of God. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the text preceding this, the Apostle Paul has reminded us that what it means to really worship God is an act of loving service. We came this morning, led in our, our time of singing this morning, because everything that happens in this service is worship, not just our singing, not just the prayer, not just the testimonies, but everything that happens is our worship before God. In fact, the very attitudes with which we come to the service this morning offers to God an act of worship. We are living sacrifices, joyfully committing ourselves to God. Because in this special relationship to God, with faith in Jesus Christ as Savior from sin, we are transformed, you see, from the inside out. We understand that God gives these gifts to the body so that we might grow in Him. 
There are three things I want to think with you about this morning. If I were going to put anything together, it might sound like a sermon, but, but I want it to be something a little bit different this morning. I want you to think about what it really means to love God's way. Our love for God and our love for one another. And how these things relate to each other and how important it is that we see these things fit together. First, godly love has a deep and abiding character. Paul says earlier in the 12th chapter in verses 4 and 5, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. Gifted people in the body of Christ, because God calls us to be part of his body, the church, and he gives to each of us by his spirit a gift to be used in the building up of the body. So I don't know what your gift is, but you're here this morning. If you're a Christian, you are meant to build up this body of Christ. And so how are you going to do that? You have to be motivated with something that comes from within. And I'm suggesting to you this morning is this deep and abiding character of the love of God that transforms your life and allows you to take those gifts that you have and use them in relationship to others. Sincere love is really the best translation for verse 9. Love must be sincere, he said. Love that is genuine is a reflection of God's love toward us. God's love toward us is a covenant love. It is a sustaining love. It is a forgiving love. Interesting, V.J. reminded us in her testimony that, that, that when she was a little girl, that she understood that she was a sinner. I think all of us who grew up in committed Christian families know from our parents that we are sinners. My grandchildren happen to know that they are sinners by their parents. My granddaughter, Miss Caitlin, who's seven years old, understands from her mother that she is a sinner. She's a stubborn, self-willed, self-important sinner, but she is nevertheless a sinner. <laughs> But the love that, is a, that creates within us this, this deep and abiding character is a love that is coming from outside. And so as, as Caitlin's going to be shaped, she's going to shape by the love of her parents and hopefully by the love of her grandparents. And we are shaped by the love of our parents, by the love of our grandparents, by the love of one another, and by the power of God. It means that love of this nature is dynamic, coming from a transformed heart and mind. Learning to love unconditionally. This is really the key. To have that character of deep and abiding love is to learn to love unconditionally. Now, most of us live in a world where we live in a kind of quid pro quo world, of this for that world. I'll do this if you'll do that. But the kind of love that Paul is talking about here is an unconditional love. God's unconditional love for us. God loved us, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, while we are still sinners. And we are to have that same love translated into our lives. We are to have the kind of love that propels us to put others before ourselves. Now, that's a very hard thing. If you commute to Boston every day on the Southeast Expressway, it's a very hard thing to imagine that you should put others before yourself. Because there are those crazy drivers on the highway. Some behind you, some ahead of you, and all of those beside you. Should we put others first? Yes, even in our driving we should put others first. God's still working on that message for me now. And so I'm <laughs> preaching myself this morning. Love that is godly creates a kind of energy in our growing spiritual lives that, that 
helps us in our development, and it allows us to be set on fire by God. I'm wondering what would happen in a congregation like this if we were, by the Holy Spirit, set on fire by God and learned to love God's way. What would it mean in our relationships with each other? What would it mean in our service to God? What would it mean in our service in this community? What would it mean in the places that we work? What would it mean in our neighborhoods? Because we are to be transforming agents as we develop this deep and abiding character of love. When this happens, there's a revolutionary kind of thing that takes place. And in the presence of God in prayer, some things change in our lives. Notice the way that life is to be faced. He said we have to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. We can be joyful in hope. We can be faithful in prayer. But can we be patient in affliction? The test, you see, really, of the Christian life is when we face difficult things, we surely will face difficult things. The Christian life was never meant to be an easy thing. When we face difficult things, will we be faithful? We need a powerful center. And so as a consequence, in a community, we need to learn how to care for each other, to bear one another's burdens, to fulfill the law of Christ. One of the things that I see in the church as I, as I visit churches around and I see the life of the church, is that somehow we have first a commitment to God and Jesus Christ, and then that commitment to one another. What would that commitment to one another be like? Learning to care for one another as people who are gifted by God to serve Jesus Christ, to learn in this deep and abiding character that we have to serve God. An old Hasidic rabbi, Levi Yitzhak, the Ukraine used to say that he discovered the meaning of love from a drunken peasant. A drunken peasant, you say? Yes. He talked about visiting a tavern in the Polish countryside. He saw two peasants, Peter and Ivan, uh, gloriously in their cups, I think. But he said, uh, Ivan said to Peter, Peter, tell me what hurts me. Blurry-eyed, Peter looked at Ivan and said, how do I know what hurts you? Ivan says, if you don't know what hurts me, how can you say that you love me? You see, in the community of faith, we, we, are to, we are to care for one another so that we know we can bear one another's burdens to fulfill the law of Christ. So to have a deep and abiding character of love, that love then is to be directed outward. And now the teaching becomes very practical. We are to share with others who are in need. We are to practice hospitality. To get in touch with others. To transform the church you say, well, that's the pastor's job. That's Jeremy and Rich, Seth's job, and praise team's job. No, no, no. It, it is our job. <laughs> we are responsible for the transformation. One of my favorite people, Larry Crabb, Christian psychologist, who wrote a wonderful book called Connecting. Larry had suffered with cancer for a long period of time. He'd written a lot of books about helping people as a psychologist, and as a psychologist myself, I appreciate that. But when I talked with Larry just after he had written his book, he said the thing that was transformational for him, the change, it was not the people that helped him, it was not the psychology that helped him, it was the people in his congregation who walked with him through his struggle with cancer and who helped him as he went through all of these difficult adjustments. They learned how to care for him. They were connected to him. You see, because when we understand God's love, we become connected to others. We want to reach out. We want to touch other lives. We want to make a difference 
for God. So we are to live in harmony with one another. We are to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You say, well, this is just hyperbolic language, isn't it? No, no Paul is really serious about this. We are to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. And do good to those who abuse us. So he says in imperative language, not, not a suggestion... You know, if you feel like it, if it, if it, if it works for you, if, it, if it, you get up this morning and you feel like it, then you should live at peace with others. No, he said, as far as it depends on you, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, the thing is that sometimes we focus on other people rather than ourselves. And I have to ask, what am I doing to live at peace with people? Not what are other people doing to live at peace with me. We need to understand this is a command. We're, we're this morning in a beautiful sanctuary, and uh, we, you look pretty pious, actually. I don't know some of you, but, but you look pretty pious. And uh, yeah, I mean, those that I can see, yes, most of you, look very pious indeed. And we certainly understand how to look pious. We know what to look like when we come to church. We look alert. Some of you are still awake even, which is a wonderful thing. <laughs> but even when we're shredded on the inside, even when things are just in turmoil on the inside, we like to keep up appearances. But God is not impressed. Because while we look on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And so this morning, as you sit here, God knows your heart. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows the deepest longing of your heart. He knows what you need. He understands the pain in your life. We have to have an abiding character directed outward. Because you see, we live in a world where godly love is the only antidote to evil. Oh, we depend on lots of things. We depend on politics. We depend on armies. We depend on, on military power. We depend on economics. We depend on social programs. But the only thing that really changes people is godly love. If you really want to make a difference internationally, you're going to do what this team is doing. You're going to go serve in a short-term mission trip. If you want to make a difference internationally, pray that God will reach out to convert Muslims and Hindus and those who do not know Christ. Because if we want to see peace in the Middle East, not going to come with armies, important as they are, but armies are not going to bring peace. Economic development is not going to bring peace. What brings peace is the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So if your prayer life is going to mean anything, then pray that God is going to in a great movement of revival spread the gospel throughout the Middle East the world in which we live is incredibly dark and evil look at all the, the, the precautions we have to take in the city of Boston because we're worried about terrorism how are we going to make a difference in the world sometimes we make a difference in the world by, by asking what God wants us to do our good friend, some of you know him, Ajith Fernando, who is president of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, told about how they decided in Youth for Christ to minister to the group in, in Sri Lanka after the tsunami that swept over the Indian Ocean and destroyed so much of that whole area of the world. Sri Lanka forbids Christianity in its open expression. It is seen as unethical 
to try and win others to Christ. And yet Youth for Christ is a growing movement in Sri Lanka. And Ajith told the story when he brought his people together there in the in Sri Lanka and asked what should we do to reach out he recognized that there were, the schools had been disrupted and so if they could just return children to school this would be a wonderful thing to do and so they decided since they were not allowed to preach the gospel directly that they would do something they, they put together school kits for the children because people were giving clothes but the kids needed underwear too and so, so they put together school kits that included underwear and pencils and pens and crayons and notebooks and other kinds of things and they, they made 34,000 of these books these bags and they distributed them then he said we had to decide what were we going to do about that would we say as we distributed these love from Youth for Christ no he said we decided we would just send them out without any note because we wanted to demonstrate God's love without bringing any credit to ourselves. And that outreach of those book bags to those 34,000 children, can you imagine? They knew where they'd come from. But no one was twisting their arms because it was the love of God working through the lives of those many workers in Youth for Christ who distributed to those young children. So, Recognize that God's justice is perfect, that we cannot bring justice to the world, that God himself will bring justice to the world. So what should we do? We should do like the youth of Christ in Sri Lanka did. Paul says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. See, Paul is not saying that we should take a do-nothing attitude toward those who are resistant to us. Because sometimes we come to the place where we, we want to share our faith with others, but sometimes in the workplace, that's just not possible. Sometimes in our families, people don't want to hear anymore. So what should we do? Be loving. Be gracious. Be gentle. Practice hospitality. Ask what can I do for them? Minister to them. <coughs> Paul says, don't be consumed by the evil around you. Overcome evil with good. Sometimes the simplest kind of goodness makes a difference. I have the privilege of serving uh, now at Tremont Temple in Boston, a multicultural congregation in the heart of the city. What a wonderful opportunity that we have. One of the great outreaches that we have in the city is, is a Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner for people who don't have any place to go. Mostly street folk. Folk who come in. Unwashed, smelly, and hungry. And, and, and uh, one of my associates, Effie Sidoropolo, she said, I don't have a sense of smell. And, and this is obvious because she, she, she always embraces these people as they come. The unwashed, the unloved, lovely. And when I, when I see her on the street, if we're walking with, a, with our staff, we're going to lunch, and I see her, there, there are people sitting in the doorways, people who are out with their cups holding up. They, they always speak. They know who she is. They know who she is because she hugs them. She loves them. She gives them warm socks and mittens and hats for the cold. And she preaches the gospel. St. Francis said, Wherever you go, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. 
One of the things that, uh, yeah, sometimes you see that as we're going to manifest the love of Christ and understand what love really is, we're going to reach out to those who are needy, those who are the throwaway people in our culture. Take the time to minister to the throwaway. It's so easy to minister to the nice people. It's so easy to minister to those that, that we like. But our responsibility, my friends, is to minister to those that we don't like. To minister to those who are the marginalized people of our culture. Who need desperately to understand God's love. So what is love anyway? It is obviously love is sincere and consistent in the face of all kinds of situations. It's obviously love as if it's directed outward toward the building of community. It's obviously love if it effectively nullifies the power of evil caused by sin in human relationships. Because love covers a multitude of sins. My favorite author, one of my favorite authors at least, Brennan Manning wrote in his book, Abba's Child, the cross reveals that Jesus has conquered sin and death and that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither the imposter nor the Pharisee, neither the lack of awareness nor the lack of passion, neither the negative judgments of others nor the debased perception of ourselves, neither our scandalous past nor our uncertain future, neither the power struggles in the church nor the tensions in our marriage, nor fear, guilt, shame, self-hatred, not even death can tear us away from the love of God made visible in Jesus Christ. May God help us to become real love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.